It is election day. Well, by the time you hear this podcast, it'll be election day. Now, if you heard that song drop, then you already know what time it is. All my Game of Thrones fans definitely perked up when they heard that music. Now, if you're not familiar with this fan of you're not familiar or a fan of the show, well, that just makes you lame. I'm joking. Sort of. But honestly, I couldn't think of a better show opening at this time than playing the opening theme of that particular program. Not only because the spinoff show, House of the Dragon, dropped this past Sunday. Don't worry, we won't get into no spoilers if you haven't watched it yet. But also, no other show represents politics than the interdimensional drama of campaigns than Game of Thrones. Barack Obama, former President Barack Obama, said it was his favorite program and it best elicited political drama in Washington, D.C. To me, it's the perfect allegory of modern American political drama. You have betrayals, the remarks of sexism in a patriarchy when considering the right of power, Unholy alliances, scheming machinations, alternative motives, plots to destroy, and even sex. Now, I'm not talking about the show. I literally am talking about actual happenings in politics. And if you're privy to the political, political water cooler gossip, then all those juicy details tend to surround it. Now, I'm by no means a political insider by any merit. I'm literally just a nerd of politics, just like I'm a nerd of this show. But just like the show... I like to sit back and watch with great fanfare. Now, right now, Democrats, particularly here in Florida, are in the midst of a battle royale to unseat the mad king that is Ron DeSantis. The only two Democrats in the race are Nikki Freed and Charlie Chris, both of whom are vying to get on the Iron Throne. The Iron Throne itself being an allegory of how a king or a queen can never rest easily while seated on the throne. The swords of many men poking at you, and if you're not careful and get too comfortable, it can cut you and can be deeply fatal. Unless, of course, you're Ron DeSantis, who seemingly not even worried about anybody pricking his ego and obviously his political hide. He's obviously not worried about what's coming in the primary, and, you know, he's running commercials as showing so. I mean, my man is literally sitting on $150 million plus for his election campaign to be spent between now and November. That's literally like 14 weeks. Now, I'm not going to get into the minutia of whether or not a dragon lady candidate will beat the wily old general, although it'd be incredibly easy to do so. And the reason I don't want to do that, and it's just because by the time you hear this podcast, it may not even matter. What I do want to focus on is this podcast, the man they're vying to beat. Ronald, don't call me Donald unless it's Trump DeSantis. A man who's poised not only to win re-election in Florida, but has his eyes on the 2024 seat at White House. Iron Throne at White House, rather. Now, because this is an election day pod, I don't want to bore you with details who would win, because by the time, again, you would listen to this, the question might already be irrelevant. But what is not irrelevant is whether or not DeSantis is an unstoppable force or an immovable object. In my opinion, strategy for one is a lot easier than the other. Because if something is seemingly in unstoppable, then nothing short of Valerian Steel can kill this white walker of a man. However, if something is immovable, though, then, well, maybe a dragon flying over the top to take over the crown could prove effective with the breath and fire of the electorate burning his political chances. Now, we can evaluate both strategies, and in my opinion, strategy makes small men mighty and mighty men small. I actually just came up with that. So if you're going to use that, I want, I'm going to have to trademark that. That's Kamara 2022, August 2022. Um, don't steal my shit. 
Because after all, what is politics but simply strategy put towards the game of public policy? And what is that game if nothing more than objective to get the crown, or in this case, the Iron Throne? But before then, before we talk about all that great stuff, welcome to Uncultural Bias Podcast. My name is Kamara Williams. I'm your host. On our show, we say that culture is a matter of perspective and opinion. After all, culture is another way to say discovered. We are in culture. We are biased. We are black. Now, if you're tuning in for the first time, welcome. If you're a returning listener, welcome back. Welcome back. Welcome back. We ask all listeners to uh, give a rating on both Spotify and Apple. That's how the uh, those actual platforms grade uh, interest and engagement. Um, so please, please, please do that. We ask for a five-star rating if we are so inclined. Uh, we want to give a shout-out to this week's sponsors, uh, Coleman Law. Uh, eight, you can reach them at 850-597-2990. That's 850-597-2990. They actually, uh, you know, they helped out somebody the other day. I was on a phone call, and it was a real estate contract, um, real estate issue regarding business and tax, and um, it, whether their taxable interest was going to be exposed and they actually walked that that client um through very effectively so i really really highly recommend them if you're in a market for real estate speaking of so, so contact keystone global real estate at um, 407-680-8510 that's keystone global real estate at 407-680-8510 and of course you're in a market for uh, wills trust estate planning probate all that wonderful stuff please contact smith williams at 888-SWTG-LAW at 888-SWTG-LAW all right, brilliant. So right now, I'm going to go ahead and bring on uh, my frat, uh, C. Isaiah Smalls the second. Uh, he writes for the Miami Herald. What's up, bro? You still with me? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. What's going on? I appreciate you having me today. Nah, man. I love the. I love all the the Game of Thrones, House of Dragon. I watched it last night, so I'm excited. You know, for the season, so I appreciate you starting off like that. Oh man, I was going to test you. I was going to say, are you are you a fan? So okay, I know before we get into the whole politics thing, I mean, like, what is your favorite part about Game of, Game of Thrones? Oh man, for me, it's how they weed together like the characters and like they make the audience fall in love with this character, and then they just kill him. <laughs> to be honest, <laughs> that's my favorite part because like I I get so emotionally invested in these characters. And I'm like, oh, my God, I can't wait for them to, you know, do this, this, this. And then it's just like, uh, well, you know, now they're dead. So um, I'm trying not to get that emotionally invested with the characters this this series. So we'll see how I do. I feel like you literally just describe describe what is it like a primary campaign. <laughs> <laughs> you literally describe that. You get so emotionally invested in these people. And in the yeah. coming election day, they're dead and they're no longer relevant <laughs> anymore to the entire story anymore. Right, yeah. you build them up yeah. all primary season. Great writing, great themes, great thematic, you know, undertones, and then uh, you're dead. Nobody cares. <laughs> Time to move on. There's a bigger story at hand. So you walked right into that, bro. I did. I did. I did. <laughs> no, that's, I did. It, that's dope, though. Yeah, I mean, for me, I love the show because I mean, it's just so well scripted. I mean, okay, let me be honest. Uh, seasons one through seven were really good, and then season eight yeah, of was was trash. Yeah. I think we're all in agreement on that. Yeah, it yeah. was just like you could tell they just yada yada that season, and it's kind of like, all right, well, this is kind of finishes yeah. off. So, but I mean, what I again, what I loved about the show, especially the first several seasons, is that they would take a long time to get to a plot, um, but they were so intricate in the way 
they they um outline things right and and so and then they would Very true. they would have a storyline let's see, i'm just giving an example here but they would have a storyline that with one episode from season two and then by season five they go right back to that episode in season two but if you didn't watch it you were like it, yeah but you know if you're a fan you're like oh snap i remember that yeah. you know and again it reminds me of politics because i feel like when you're watching politics from afar from a bird's eye view you know a lot of times people get caught up into like the immediacy of a conversation. And to me, there's always a byproduct of like, mm, this is the historical context and that here's why that matters. You know what? Actually I can really tie into this. And there's so many different culmination fact that factors that go into like why someone's successful, why this uh, policy plan doesn't work. What community does this affect? And again, going back into the game of Thrones fee- uh, um, uh, uh, theme, you know, different political um, subsectors of class, um, they have their own fiefdoms and why this fiefdom is more important and why we have to make sure we don't walk through the marshlands of this particular um, group. And then we don't go through and, you know, talk about, you know, <laughs> the badlands in this area, you know what I mean? So like it's, 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 it's um, laced with so much great imagery, man. But um, one of the things I, what I wanted to uh, bring you on to the pod, because in the, several weeks ago you wrote an article and it was about um, Ron DeSantis. Um, so, I was, yours truly was in the article. You quoted me. Thank you. Shout out to you. Of course. But of course, uh, of course. you know, they, thank you for uh, giving me a nice little, uh, nice little quote in there. You know, um, you of course. Know, I, I I didn't know he was frat prior to this. So I yeah. I, so no, that, this is new news. So, new so news. I didn't know until I saw. I'm like, oh, you're frat. But, so I don't want you people to think that you just you know. You know, put me in there for it. But I do think it's because we had that fraternal bond. You were like, I got to help this. I got to, you know, it was, it was people find good people. Good people find good people. People find good people. But yo, like for real, like I I do want to talk about your article. So why don't you go ahead and like just tell people like a little bit who didn't get a chance to read like what the article was about. And then we can kind of dissect like I kind of want to go into the mentality of who DeSantis is. Okay. Okay. Um, So for me, this is, you know, it was a story just. I talked to black Floridians throughout the state, really just trying to get some idea of how they view DeSantis and, you know, his policies and whether they feel personally attacked, where they feel like they're racist, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, and so from the vast majority of people that I talked to, even the people that were trying to be as politically correct as possible or not trying to step on any toes, um, you know, uh, the common response was, Ron DeSantis does not seem to care about black people. And that's just, you know, from what I have, you know, heard from the, from the black community. And I think what I tried to do was, you know, when I was talking with um, Dr. Patrick Mason at Florida state, he's no longer at Florida state um, now, but um, you know, he's an African-American history scholar. And one of the things that he broke down for me was how similar DeSantis strategy right now. And over the past, you know, you know, since really took, office it seemed really in the past couple years um since you know the unfortunate murder of george floyd it it, it would seem that he's kind of employing the southern strategy and i think that was the you know the route that i tried to take and when i started doing my own research on the southern strategy i was like oh okay that's 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 very interesting and when i the more people i brought it up to they were like oh i never really even thought about that so it was just except for for yours truly i I, that didn't that in yeah me. i just want to put that out there but go ahead <laughs> but it was just it was just a good opportunity because i think you know one of the things that is 
great about my job is that you get to find new perspectives and, pre and present them to the world. And so I think being able to present that one perspective, um, I think it was, it was great opportunity. I actually did not get as much hate as I thought I would because it mm -hmm. seems that, yeah, I just, I got more hate from writing about the two activists that went to the UN mm -hmm. uh, to talk about uh, HB1 and you know what they believe to be the inherent discrimination within that um i literally got a call from a white woman today that said if you really want to make a change you need to go to the inner city and help the black stop killing each other so yeah um mm -hmm. crazy. And, and, but, and now, people may not know what house bill one is so i'm sorry yes yeah let me break that down i'm yeah. sorry house bill one was the anti-protest yeah law that was the woke, woke law yes that was yes. actually struck um, down <laughs> Yes, yes. It was struck down. Parts of it was struck down. But basically, it was to... Activists felt that it was to criminalize protests just because it was created um, right after all the George Floyd protests of the summer 2020. Um, you know, some of the pieces of the law included, like, if I am driving a car and I feel threatened by the protests around me, I could hit somebody and possibly escape responsibility. Um, I, you know, there's increased penalties for people who might have been protesting peacefully. However, you know, if something it goes awry over there, like everybody at the protest would be found right. um, to be criminally liable for X, Y, Z charge. You know, there's increased penalties for destruction of, of statues and monuments. So really, it, it seems, um, you know. To, to activists to the two specifically to the two that I interviewed that like House Bill One was aimed specifically at black led organizations and black um, leaders within the community. So yes, it was one of the many many things that uh, you know the Florida legislator DeSantis really pushed uh, in the past couple years. Yeah, and so you know some people may not understand like the, a, a federal judge um, actually declared that um, that woke law. First of all, I hate the t term woke. And I'm, I'm going to get into yeah, that in a moment. Same. I'm going to get into same. that. But um, the woke law was deemed unconstitutional in parts because it was an indoctrination of a targeting of black protesters. And um, the ripeness of the law, particularly when there were other instances when there actually was protest and he there was not criminalized. So then it became like, well, what is the point of this law? Because you did not criminalize people, you know, when it actually happened. But you put it in place. So what is the reason behind the law? As Cardi B, what was the reason? You know, like, you know, so, yeah. like, you know, like, so it was um, deemed unconstitutional because honestly, the merits of the law held no, held no water. And a judge saw right through it. Everybody saw it. Right. Even when he instituted the law or he, he brought the law up, I, I think anybody with two eyes, uh, two ears and a brain and two nostrils can see, smell, hear, and think what this law was about and who it's targeting. Because again, at the height of the George Floyd, it was like, oh, we're not going to have people destroy property. And then the question was like, well, who's destroying property in Florida? Right? Like, where's very, the, very where are the facts? You know, show me. And he was like, well, and then when someone pressed him, it's like, well, we're trying to make sure it doesn't happen in Portland. I'm like, Portland, bro? Across the country? Portland? <laughs> and those are white people. Let's go. That's Portland. That wasn't even like black, you know what I mean? So I'm like, what were you talking about, right? So um, it was, again, when we talk, going to the Game of Thrones, like when we talk about politics, there's always this little thread of things that tie in. So he was trying to, he was 
you know, said Antifa and all these other things that trying to uh, do an amalgamation of, and it, saying how it's going to affect Florida. And we're trying to do a prevent. Uh, we're trying to prevent what's going to happen here. And it, again, that also invalidated the law a little bit about DeSantis. But I've, I have the opinion that, and again, we'll get into that too, that DeSantis knows these things are not going to win, but that's really not the purpose of why he does these things. You know? Um, so that's the psychology that I think we should talk about in a moment. But um, just breaking down a little bit, you said, I thought something that you thought was pretty interesting. You said you did not get any pushback from people. Yeah, it was it was very, very interesting. Like, I thought that I was going to usually anytime I write these stories about race, I like brace myself for the impact, you know, mm -hmm. um, and I didn't really get any from, uh, you know, the from it's usually nine times out of 10 white people. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I, I didn't I didn't get any. It was very it was very interesting. I got a lot of support from our community, from black community. A lot of people were like, yes, great job. Right. Um, and so that, those are always great moments, but you know, I didn't, you know, I was, I was expecting the other side to kind of come at me and I'm always a little, you know, wary yeah. of that. Um, and so I, you know, I didn't receive any, but I was, you know, I mean, look, I'm, mm -hmm. it, it doesn't really matter. I'm not, I don't, I, I've always tell people that I, I, I write for a very specific audience. And like, if you, if you think that you're a part of it, then you probably are. If you, you know, have the nerve to call me and interrupt my Saturday talking about black on black crime and all that stuff. It probably wasn't for you. You might need to do a little bit more research. So, and uh, that specific audience is black people, black folk. Bingo. Yeah. Um, one of the things, I think is interesting about your job though. You cannot take a position. Yes. You have, as, yes. A, as a journalist, you have to strike a tone of balance as a podcaster. I don't know what balance is. But <laughs> uh, tell me, like, some of your difficulty in trying to write balanced, trying to find balance with Ron DeSantis. Yeah. So and this is the thing that I, I tell everybody. Like, so I went to I graduated from Columbia Journalism School um, 2019, Morehouse 2018. And so one of the things, shout out to my like, boy, Lyndon, who's a, who, you know, Morehouse man. So he's, you know, shout out. He's a great man, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, but so I, a lot of my political education was, you know, that political education foundation was at Morehouse. And so when I get to Columbia and one of the things that really bothered me is that there's a statue of Thomas Jefferson right in front of the journalism school. Mm. So I had to walk past that statue every single day and into classrooms where white people, primarily white people, try to talk to me about how objectivity is super important in journalism. <laughs> objectivity is that balance that you're speaking of. Right. Right. And it just, it, it struck me, you know, eventually more and more they talk about it. It just was like, okay, but there's a statue of a slave owner outside of the journalism school. Yeah. And so that was a very conscious decision to put it there. So you're not going to tell me that there isn't. And as journalists, like, I think we're, we're lying to ourselves if we're saying that we're being completely 100% objective because right. you are choosing what to put in the story. You are choosing to put this quote in there over that quote and all that dates back, that, all that's subjective. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, to answer your question, to I, I'm personally someone that does not believe in objectivity. Um, I believe it's something that was created by old white men yeah. who thought they were the only ones that could be impartial. Mm -hmm. However, if you look throughout our history, if you look throughout the history of the of like newspapers, you will see that there is an absence of, of black culture being, you know, uh, talked about. And so I, to, to answer your question, it's very difficult to be a black person writing about Ron DeSantis, especially when, you know, you 
reach out to the PR person, you're trying to hear his side of it, try to get, understand their side of it. And you just don't, you don't hear back, you know? So you have to, so I already automatically, the article is going to seem one-sided when in reality, I mean, it's, this is, I tried to give the other side some, some time and they didn't respond. They didn't, you know, they didn't see it for whatever reason I, I had to put it, you know, they, there was no comment. And so it, it's difficult though, because you have your own personal um, feelings about how stuff is and how stuff looks and, you know, to really have to put that as, aside and to just write about what the community is telling you. I mean, it's, it's difficult. It becomes a lot more difficult when, you know, someone is trying to sell you something that's like, okay, like, I mean, really it's like when someone bit, let me explain a little bit. When someone is trying to, you know, sell you a, a false bill of goods, you know, yeah. like when someone's, you feel like someone's lying to your face a little bit. Yeah. That's when it gets difficult to hide your opinion. Cause it's like, okay, but this happened. Right. And so you're not, you know, do you not, equate two and two together no, you know? and no so, of course they don't and yeah. so i always honestly again i'm trademark this line uh the greatest white skill is to have white blindness to white rage white rage white history and white angst i'm gonna say that again the greatest white skill is to have white blindness to white rage white history and white angst and mm. I say that because it's always amazing to me when things that are fairly obvious, especially to black folk and you present them to white people like, Oh, I never looked at it that way. And it's like, really? <laughs> like you've never looked at that way. Oh, I get it. You got white blindness. That's what it is. <laughs> That's what it is. So now I have to like give you some, you know, I have to give you some bifocals here to kind of let you see what's really going on. Get you your 2020 vision on, right? Because you're really not focused on anything else except for your own presence. So when you walk past that statue at Columbia, it doesn't surprise me that it was obtuse for them to think of objectivity, you know, is layered within um, white ideal, a white system of journalism, you know, and how can you be objective about something that is laced with, you know, uh, bigotry and history of um, character, character, black caricature and creating a theme of black, uh, uh, black presence. Like it was the media, not people. It was the media that in back in the 19th century and 18th century that presented these ideals of what black folks are to the rest of Americans. They would read these things like, Oh, okay. That's what it is. So, when you have these things in journalism and they say reporting a story, you can look at a story back in the 1930s, 40s, or 50s and look how they describe black people. Very true. You know what I'm saying? Look like, black, yeah, look how black people were portrayed on, on the television screens, on movies. Right. Like that, all that stuff has, like, all that stuff factors into your perception of black people, especially when you don't know any black people. Right. You know? And so you think that, oh, like, oh, like he's eating watermelon. Like, oh, okay, then he likes water. All black people like watermelon. Right. It's like, right. Where, where is this coming from? Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, ab- absolutely. Um, you know, just going, like, pivoting a little bit back to DeSantis here. Um, mm-hmm. What were some of the things you found, like, really, that you didn't know? Because you're not a, you're not, are you, you're not a Floridian, right? Are, no, 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 I'm from Delaware. You're from Delaware. Yes, sir. Is yes, that sir. The, what is that? The Granite State? I don't know. What is that? It's the first state. The first state. Yes, I know that. Yes, I know Biden. Biden is um, from Delaware. So, yes, um, 
not being a Floridian and having to write about a Florida Florida uh, Florida governor, what has what was something thing, some things that were striking to you that you like? I didn't really know, think about that, or something that okay that that aligns. Yeah, so I mean, one of the first things I did when I got this job is try to dive into as much Florida history as possible. You know, I look, I didn't think I'd be able to write about the black community here without knowing at least some of the experiences that people before me had. Right. You know? So I think that that's something that I did, you know, immediately. And so one of the things that, you know, I seem to, to notice is how, you know, and this is before I even, I'm, I already have this knowledge before I go into the, the DeSantis story. But one of the things that, you know, has always struck me is Florida has done a, a masterful job of sweeping under the rug all of their their terrible, terrible history when it comes to racial violence. Mm. Um, and one of the things that someone, I forget the, the name of the person that told me this, but, you know, if you think of a, if you think of a Mississippi and Alabama, like these are places that had to, uh, you know, push that history to the forefront because that's from a cultural perspective and like a tourist perspective, that's kind of all they had. Right. Florida, you know, sunshine, beaches, great weather, all that stuff. So it makes it easier to hide certain stuff because if they found out that the very first uh, civil rights killing, which is Harry and Harriet Moore, yep. was in Florida, yep. that's going to affect tourists, right? And mm-hmm. so when you think about how history has been swept under the rug here, it kind of informs your perception of certain things that happen more current. So if you think about something like the anti-woke bill, Mm -hmm. um, you know, you, you read it and then you look at the, you hear talk to teachers and you hear how, you know, difficult their jobs have become. And you read some of the things like, I forget what, what we wrote about, but it was basically like a civics training, the civics training that some Florida teachers had to undergo. You look at some of the things that they're seeing and you're like, okay, I don't remember that learning that in history class, you know, and you can tell that there's a very certain agenda that's being pushed. Um, That's one of the things that, you know, as something that I kind of knew, um, but after learning this, you know, after doing the story, it's something that um, kind of shined a little bit brighter to me. And and something that I had kind of totally forgotten about until I started doing the reporting for this story was the, you know, don't monkey this up comment that he made. Uh, but, uh, right, Andrew Gillum. Yeah. yeah yep. Directed at, at Gillum. Right. You know, and that was something that I remember hearing about, but I wasn't here at the time. That was what, November 2018. So I was still in Columbia at that time. Right. So I remember hearing it, but not putting much stock into it until, you know, like I said, you start doing more reporting, you start seeing what has happened since then. And it's, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of, it's kind of eye opening. Mm-hmm. Um, and it makes you as a, you know, as a resident, as a black Floridian resident, like my, uh, you know, my I had to change away from the Delaware ID. I'm now Florida ID through and through. You know, oh, um, I, I want to so, make a I want to do a point of, and I just realized something. I'm sure somebody caught it. Again, he's lost so many bills, like the anti riot bill. That's what I was talking about, and then the anti woke bill, which is something you're referring to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. I keep he because he's lost he lost both of those cases in under federal. But I'm sorry, and I didn't mean to kill. I just it just literally clicked to me. I'm like I think I confused the two. But go ahead. No, no, it's all good. It's all good. Um, it's just one of those things that, you know, once you understand the history of, of what has happened beforehand, the history of the state, mm-hmm. it makes you kind of look at all of the current legislation 
just with a you know uh, an air of, of skepticism. Right. I think that's that's important, you know. Right. As journalists, and I think as you know citizens of the United States, I think we have to be skeptical of almost everything. Right. So and then so you know talking about that woke bill, um, of course, as you mentioned, the civics training, um, uh, the dis- district judge, uh, I think it was uh, Mark uh, Walker. Yeah, Mark Walker. He uh, mentioned how that. Um, the indoctrination of trying to curtail certain stories of black history, things that are important, like you just mentioned, Harry and Harriet T. Moore um, being killed, you know, right here in central Florida. And nobody, you know, a lot of people don't really know that story. You know what I mean? And so like, it's, it shows you that you would think something that's so integral in Florida history and you know, U.S. history would be something at the top, but I can guarantee you, that is not within the civics course. And, no, not at all. You know, and it it cuts off again large segments of history. And again, going back to the Thomas Jefferson statue, we have this mythology and what they want to create this mythology of white men in, in past, right? And white government, and how everything was good and everything was great, and we want to make it great again. And how it just it everybody was happy, and even the slaves weren't really slaves. I mean, they were just they were just happy workers. That's what they're trying to do in Texas. So they do all these things in order to yeah. really, you know, do a broad stroke analysis of what history, yeah. and there's no nuanced understanding. And for him, I mean, he doesn't really care about that, right? That's not, he doesn't care if it's nuanced. He cares about targeting his group, targeting people that are actually going to vote for him. And he knows that generally speaking, most people don't read history, and let's even go even further. Most people who follow him don't really care about, um, don't really want to hear about the truth of American history because it takes away from their patriotism. If in fact they're wrestled with the truth of what that patriotism, the blood of what that patriotism has brought them. No, I think you're completely correct. It's and. I'm just going to use that example that I had yeah. gave earlier in the, in the show with the white woman that called me today, you know, um, she launched right into how, you know, on the Biscayne on Biscayne Boulevard, how that CVS was destroyed and how she lived right there. And then when she said the, she said destroyed by the blacks, that's when I was like, okay, hold on, <laughs> you know, ma'am, like, you know, I, I, I didn't like the way you said that. You right, know? Right, I'm right. trying to, and I'm trying to like, you know, give her like, you know, try to encourage her to like, just stop talking for a second just so I can get a word in. Cause I'm not, I, and for anybody who listens to this and thinks that it's okay to call your local reporter and just, you know, unload on them. It's, it's not cause we're people too. at least give us a chance to respond right. something like that. Right. But you know, I, I ended up, I had to hang up on it because I couldn't get a word in, you know, called me back and then that's when she said the hb1 and you know he really you know all the riots that were happening here and and i'm just like man like that's factually incorrect there were zero riots here right like a cvs got destroyed because people were angry and that's the thing that you know i always you know go back to the mlk quote you know uh riots are the language of the unheard unheard, right you know um and you know this is a piece of property like the property well insured yeah. Yes. Well insured. Like that part that that those windows, the, those broken glass that can be swept up, that can a new window will be in there tomorrow. Right. But you, you can't bring back George Floyd. You can't bring back a Breonna Taylor. Like these are they're, they're gone. 
Right. And for people to lose that a the fact that a life was was lost, to lose that I to lose that empathy, I think is it's it's dangerous. It's very very dangerous. Well, property has always been been deemed more important than human lives. Hundred in this country, not just Florida, in this world, property has always been deemed more important than the human human capital. And so, and in only time when American history this is why, you know, black people were valued was because we were deemed property. And then when you remove the property from us, then you become, our value becomes less than because it's like, well, no, you got to separate. No, you know, you're not as important as this thing that I can put a monetary value on, you know? Humanity doesn't have humanity shouldn't have a dollar sign, but capitalism will tell you everybody has a dollar sign, you know, and that's kind of the, you know, and that's going into another whole philosophical discussion. But in reality, and I always say how, you know, capitalism is a strain of white supremacy, blah, 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 blah. But anyway, um, the idea behind, again, like, say, the woke act, um, and it was really designed to not make white people feel bad about, you know, the reality of their history. It was designed for them to have cataracts of white blindness to the ugliness of their world, you know, and, you know, make them feel comfortable. It's all good, you know, and I don't care if black people or someone, a, 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 you know, someone of color feels uncomfortable, but the fact that a piece of their history is not being, you know, relayed because what's the purpose? We don't really care about that. We just care about making us comfortable. Right. And, I think ultimately that is in the psychology and the purpose of Ron DeSantis. His ideal is to not make everybody comfortable, just the people who care about him comfortable. Mm-hmm. Everybody else can be uncomfortable. And in fact, it's in that uncomfortableness that he thrives. That's my opinion. You know? I mean, I, I think the the point that you mentioned there with the, not wanting white kids to, to feel guilty. When when I saw that, I my mind just melted a little bit because I was like, I remember feeling uncomfortable throughout history class. Yeah. And so if 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 anything, I remember like when I learned about the KKK, I had nightmares mm. because I have my family is one side of my family is from Mississippi, Tupelo, Mississippi. Like my grandpa can tell you horror stories mm-hmm. about stuff like that, you know? And so for the for him to specifically say, I don't want white kids to feel guilty, feel bad about the history. It's just like, whoa, this is, if the history is taught correctly, I think that people are going to feel guilty. I mean, and if you do, and if you do feel guilty, then then that's okay. Then there's, that's a place, places of discomfort is where we grow as people, you know, hundred percent. You know, I, I agree with that. And I will actually say this. Nobody reads about Nazism. And be like, oh, I can't read that stuff because it makes me uncomfortable about, you know, how I feel about, you know, Judaism. Unless you got a problem with Judaism. Most people who read about Nazism are like, oh, man, that was really just a terrible thing in history. And we got to make sure we never do that again. We got to pay attention to anti-Semitism, you know, in any structure of this country. And, and so that's what ha- that's natural when you're reading something that is so terrible that you're like, and you're like, I have no belief in that system but I understand why this thing is so terrible. But if you're reading something and it makes you like, Ooh, I don't, I don't like this. Then you have to ask yourself, why does that make me uncomfortable? Right. 
Um, when you're reading something, when someone, a woman's describing her, her life and she feels, does she talk about how she feels violence and threatened, you know, because how men treat her, treat them. And you were like, but not all men. Then you got to really ask the question. Why did I feel like I got to respond to that? You know, yeah. like, like what? Yeah. Clearly she's yeah. not talking about you, but if you felt, you know, the cool breeze on your neck. You know, from that state, from a statement, yeah. then maybe you should figure out why do you have a draft? You know, hundred percent. Because I know I don't feel a cool breeze on my neck. My shit's well covered. I'm like, oh, you're talking <laughs> about? I got a scarf. You know, my, my my history is scarfed up. I don't feel I don't feel no ways about you know women violence because I mean I respect it and I understand it, but I don't feel like when women talk about it, I have to I have to offer another perspective because that that doesn't help the conversation. You know, um, mm-hmm. but, you know, looking into like Ron DeSantis, though, and I and again, we talked about how he he does these bills and um, he does these big proclamations. And these big announcements, right? Last week, he had an announcement um, regarding voting, you know, uh, all these voters that he had a, in Broward County had this big old press conference. You know, but we're going to stamp down on 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 voting because people are trying to, you know, steal elections. And then, you know, he reveals a list of like 20 people, <laughs> 20 people, literally out of millions of out of like yeah. out of um like 10 million voters. He found 20 people. And that's conveniently what conveniently within a week from the election, within a week, with, conveniently. conveniently within a week of election. And it, it's like, I mean. If the government got up and said something like, we are going to stop down, uh, we're going to stamp down on, you know, uh, corruption within within uh, uh, the police force nationally. And I found a hundred people. <laughs> you <be> like, <laughs> that's what I'm you were like, uh, yeah, you could have done a press release, bro. You didn't have to do a whole, yeah. you didn't have to do yeah. a whole thing, right? But like, yeah. it's not about the substance of it. It's about the headline. And that's what he cares about because um, I, I'm not going to get into the candidates, but I did have a particular candidate who was running for governor. And I asked him what, you know, his thoughts were on DeSantis and the whole Disney thing. And he, I read your, I think I read your thread about this. Go ahead. Keep going. Though. Yeah. And he literally had no clue. Like he was, he was like, I don't know because he's a bad man. And I was like, I think it's a little bit deeper than that. You know, <laughs> I think it's a little bit deeper that he's just a bad man, right? Like, I, and I'm gonna need yeah, you. Yeah. I'm gonna need you to kind of give me a little bit more depth into understanding who this man is. And to him, it was totally unless he didn't really either think deeply about it, or he didn't really want to put too much thought, or didn't want to, ex, you know, expound upon that on that particular uh, podcast. To me, it was spoke to somebody that he understands. They're talking about DeSantis. He understands that it's never really about the substance, but about how it raises my profile. And if I can get something to raise my profile within the demographic that I'm trying to impress, I've won the battle. I've won the war. And someone who he who who he models his life after, his political life, or how he got onto the stage was Donald Trump. Donald Trump never cared about the substance of things. All he cared about was the, was the headline and the profile. You know, it didn't matter, you know, what the the whole, you know, the minutiae of things were. It was like as long as that, that's a great line, push it out. 
because it, it shows I'm winning, you know? And to me, I think that's the psychology of a man that you have to, you have to really dig into and figure out what is his motivations. And if you don't figure out, you don't understand a man's motivations, then you don't understand how to beat him. That's kind of my opinion on that. You got to know who, what his motivations are. And it can't be DeSantis is a bad man and he's a bad dude. We got to get rid of him. You can't, you can't do that. You have no chance. You're going to be yeah. chasing it. You're going to be chasing instead of leading. You're going to be chasing him, you know, because you're going to keep trying to respond to him as opposed to like, oh, I know what he's, I know what he's going to do with this. Cause I anticipate. Yeah. That makes sense. It's chess, not checkers, you know? And so again, I, I, when I see someone like him, I'm never like really shocked about what he does anymore. In fact, I was never shocked period. I'm going off on a tangent here, but indulge right. me, indulge me a little bit. Isaiah, um, you know the thing about DeSantis here that I, I've always said was that he was a he was an empty vessel, and his it was is what makes him an empty vessel makes him the most dangerous. And I said this in the beginning, and I remember when he first got in office, there were Democrats, even Black Democrats, who said, "Oh man, you know he's not doing such a bad job. You know he's not a bad he's not you know he's not oh he's okay." You know, because he's making these appointments, right? And we'll get into that because that's kind of what your article is a little bit about. He's making these appointments, mm. right? Mm. And I said, yeah, but there's a playbook behind that, right? And even the psychology behind these appointments, as you saw, they were very strategic appointments. And I'm not taking shots at the, the you know people of color who were appointed, but they fit a particular profile. And I understood that. But I, I said to people, I was like, all right, listen, I'm going to let y'all have that right now. But let's go ahead and see what it looks like in a couple of years. I made the, I made the, um, I, I guess I, I did the, I don't, you, did you ever watch Matrix? Mm-hmm. And you watched Terminator? Definitely. Yes. Okay. Yes. So walk, here, walk, here's my thoughts on this, right? If you guys know the story about Matrix and the Terminator, you know, a black woman created it. Are you familiar with that story? I actually am not familiar with that one. No. Okay. I didn't so, know. Clue. Yeah. See, a black woman created uh, the matrix. Okay. And in that, um, she, if you look at like, take a bird's eye view from like the Terminator and the matrix, you see how they kind of like co-align a little bit. Like the Terminator happens is a precursor to the matrix. Almost. You see how, you know what I'm saying? Like machines take over. In Terminator. Oh wow! Okay. You're right, mm-hmm. and then 200 years later is like is the Matrix of what ha- you know what I mean? Yeah. You see, you see the. Wow. Right. Okay. okay. So, yeah. um, I'm going somewhere with this. So anyway, you see how they're like really, uh, uh, they're tied in. So a black woman, she thought of this concept. Hollywood shunned her out. That was her idea. Then in comes. You know, um, Warner Brothers, and they buy up, they buy the rights to the Terminator. There's a reason why Terminator One and Two made a lot of sense because they had an outline that was already created for them. There's mm-hmm. a reason why Terminator Two, Three, Four, Five, and Six were terrible because they went away from the playbook, right? Because okay. they didn't have, they didn't have, they didn't when you, they weren't the originators of the thought. So they didn't know where to take the story. They knew where the, okay. they, they knew how the story started, but they didn't know how the story ended. Same thing with the Matrix. There's a reason why Matrix 1 was great 
and Matrix 2, 3, and 4 were terrible because they knew how to start the story, but they never were the Wachowski brothers never originated the story. So they didn't know how to they didn't know how to create something, you know, past the story because they weren't the originators. And that's mm-hmm. why it got worse. Same thing with Game of Thrones. Game of Thrones got worse because the writers for the Game of Thrones uh to the show went away from the books. And as they started going away from the books, it got worse because they didn't create the thought. When you don't are not the originator of something, it's hard to really keep keep going with the momentum. Especially when you you're not the originator of a thought or a platform. Ron DeSantis, original when he first got in office, he took his platform from Andrew Gillum, and so he just he, he so it, everything he did in the first year was trying to model because he didn't have a platform. He didn't. He wasn't. He wasn't his own candidate. Even when he got onto political scene, people remember he wasn't. The only reason he got noticed is because he copied Trump with the build, build the wall. Everything about Ron DeSantis is a caricature of something that he he discovered that's going to that is going to make him better. But but once you know he runs out of his own ideas, he gets progressively worse. So when you have to figure out what Ron DeSantis is, what is filling him because he's not filled with anything. And if he's feel, and the thing that's filling him is nothing but like terrible policies, then that's what thing that you have to be worried about. Did I make? Did you did you follow me on my train of thought here? Yeah, yeah, I followed it. I followed it. I followed it. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely. So, wow, <laughs> my brother's like he's like kind of his eyes are. I mean, I mean, I'm like, well, I mean, because I'm, I, I'm still stuck on the fact that the that. Matrix and Terminator created by a black woman. I'm gonna have to do some research on, on yeah. that on my own time. Yeah, yeah, it was created by That's a black amazing. woman, and then she um she got a quiet settlement from um the studio, but she sued them for years, mm. sued them for years, and nobody acknowledged her. So I say all that to say, of course, all great things come from black people. Uh, but <laughs> I say that with Ron, with Ron, you know, he's not. There's nothing original about him except for his own ignorance. You know, and even that, even that is not original because white blindness and white ignorance, go, you know, go together like peanut butter and jelly. Um, you know, I think ultimately, though, you're going to have to find something. If you're going to write about him, you got to find, you know, what is it that makes him tick? Now, we talked about the appointment. Do you want to kind of tell me what you've come to find out about that a little bit? Yeah. So, I mean, one of the things that, I mean, this is something that you told me, um, and this is something that I had, you know, I, you know, without trying to reveal my own, you know, my own perception of it, but I, one of the things that everyone repeatedly told me as like evidence of him not being racist was the fact that he appointed, you know, a, a number of people of color. Right. And so to the, to various court vacancies, um, and so it was something that, you know, I held on to and asked everybody about how they feel about it. And then when I asked you about it, um, you know, you, you brought up the fact that it's a, it's a way to kind of shield yeah. a, a somebody from, you know, that racist accusation, right. you know, and to, to dive in to explain that a little bit more, basically, you know, if I want, if I'm pushing out policies that, you know, you feel are, are racist, anti-black, 
what what would I do? I would have a black person sitting right next to me, right. just to be like, "Hey, my black friend doesn't you know, think that it's you right. know racist." Right. And so the and so that's you know that's kind of the explanation of it a little bit. And it's you know it's something that you know it makes you think twice about because okay you know it, in in my respect and something that I've always thought about um, you know I've always wondered why certain you know certain NFL owners might be willing to have a black coach, but anytime a black owner gets brought up, it's like, ah, no. And for me, it's something that, you know, if I think about psychology kind of why, why that is, if I could try to get into their head a little bit, it's like, okay, black people are good for this. They're not good for this. Right. You know, Um, like you're good to run my football team, but you're not next good enough to sit next to me in the owner's box when I'm watching my football team. Right. And so it just brings up these, these notions of, of what what black people can be good for and what they're not good for, all that stuff. So, I mean, I'll I'll, I'll yield to you to explain. The no, no, I think coding. you're, you know, but, I, you know, I, I I think it's kind of self serving to quote myself an article. But you know, it's a lot of self indulgence there. But like, well, you know, what I said in that article was, um, you know, but yeah, it's it's. When you have appointments of color, and I, I, I mentioned Ronald Reagan, right? Mm-hmm. And how, you know, he appointed Clarence Thomas to the EOC. Okay, so everybody knows now, walking back, you can say, yeah, cl- clearly, first of all, Clarence Thomas ain't the one, right? <laughs> right? So, number one. But number two, and I'm not saying anybody who was appointed by Ron DeSantis in, um, in this current term is a Clarence Thomas. Let's make that yeah. clear. I'm, of course not. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, at least we, at this time, I don't see, I'm not willing to put, lay my hat on that. Yeah. But we understand we're with, you know, um, Ronald Reagan and Ron DeSantis. Oh, two Rons there. Um, they understand that to shield people from their own intentions, they have to put people of color or put a woman or something in that place because I don't need you. I don't need the sunlight of criticism to be on my own acts. So I need the shade, the shade of the shield to protect people from what I'm really doing. And I really am fascinated when I, when people are shocked to really delve into DeSantis and they're like, Oh damn, I didn't really think about it like that. Right. And let's just even talk about the woke act. First of all, I really fucking hate that term. I would, you know, I tell people who use the term woke, I'd be like, mm-hmm. y'all are like stuck in 2013 in a Levi's commercial. Nobody <laughs> of significance is where is using the term woke, you know, anymore, except Yo, for exactly. except for conservatives and bigots, right? And sometimes exactly. the Venn diagram co-aligns with them all going into the same focus. But yeah, nobody is using the term woke anymore. You know? And so for him to put an irrelevant term to a law shows you how <laughs> showed you how like uh, out of whack he really is. And he's not really in tune of what's going on. But also the people who backed it, it also shows you how they don't understand what's happening either. But it's not designed for the people in the know. It's designed for the racially and socially ignorant to attach themselves to. Right. That's why the woke, you know, and people say, oh, you so woke. It's like nobody talks like that. Who talk, who, who, who talks like that? You know, 
know. You know what I mean? Like, I, I, I don't know. know. You know what I mean? Like so, that. like, so, like, yeah. I, I, I really, I know it's kind of one on tangents, but I really, really hate that term woke. And when I see people, when I see conservative right, oh, su- this is super woke. I'm like, you sound so stupid. Because nobody, yeah. it, like, you know, even when they talk about uh, plots and they talk about movies, I don't want to see this woke BS. Bro, I don't even know what you're saying right now. Like, yeah. you, you don't want to see, you don't want to see a conversation that's a little bit more nuanced than what you, what we've seen. You, you basically what people want is a you know Rambo movie or an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie from the '80s, big on plot, little on substance. You know, big on swag and vigor. You know what I mean? So like, and they don't want to have nuanced conversations through the media, any medium, right? Um, but I mean, I don't. What, what are your thoughts? I'm doing a lot of talking, bro. I mean, like I. Woke is definitely one of those terms that have been out of my vernacular for quite some time. Um, it's just, it's one of those terms that have been overused to the point where you don't even necessarily know the meaning mm-hmm. of it. Um, and so anytime you have words like that, um, you know, personally, like you just got to get them out of your vernacular. But then when you see them on a law, you know, it's like piece of legislation. It's like, okay, that's, that's interesting. You know, what do you, what do you mean by that? Well, it's, you know, it's, um, a, it's just, yeah, it's designed as a pejorative term. It's pejoratively used as really a designation against black people because black it all this vernacular comes from black, you know, you know, dial, uh, dialect and conversation. So we created this. True. We created this thing woke, and so I, anytime I honestly when I hear somebody say the word woke, I just be like, oh, so you want to say nigger? Is that what? You, <laughs> <laughs> oh boy, <laughs> that's what you want to say. <laughs> Whoa. That, that's okay. This is my podcast, I can say. So you know so, yeah, so that's what you want to say? Oh. So when I see when I was like seeing people say the, the woke act, oh you call it the nick act, that's what you want to call it? You know <laughs> That's what I'm seeing. I just want you to know. You know, so anybody of my conservative friends who are listening, anytime you say woke, all black people just really just say, you know, you really say nicker, you know that right. Cause <laughs> you know, just a little put you up on some game here. So, um, I mean, Isaiah ain't denying it. He's just laughing because he didn't think I was going to say it. <laughs> I mean, look, look, I, I've never, I will say this. I've never once thought about that. I just thought that you're so, so far out of touch that you don't even know what you're saying. Right. But what I can't lie. However, that, I'm going to have to, I'm going to, anytime I hear the word work woke out. I'm going to have to like, just look and just evaluate the situation and look differently. I'm going to be honest. That's, that's a, Yeah. <laughs> That's a good one, honestly. That's a very good one. I know. Wow. I say it's like so dumb. He's like, I don't know how to answer this one. Don't get fired, bro. You don't have to. Don't get fired. Don't Don't get fired, bro. Don't worry. Don't worry. I'm not. Um, But no, man. So, you know, just talking back again with these appointments, um, I don't know if I ever. It's a little difficult because there are some candidates who I'm supporting for re-election who were appointed by. Um, DeSantis and when you talk to them personally it's they're in a difficult position because you know when you talk to them they're like you know I really don't like him like that I don't like him Um, he appointed me and I had to play the game in order to get appointed but even in that sense they're they're always they feel this sense of angst and guilt from that appointment because they don't want to be associated so closely to such a divisive governor um, did you get that feeling as well? I mean, in your, 
so I, I I wasn't able to talk to anybody that um, any of the uh, anybody that was appointed. They were very wary of talking to me. Yes. Um, which I would have to you know assume. Uh, you know, has to be has to bear some. Uh, what you just said has to bear some. You know, re- uh, relation to why they don't want to talk to me. Right. Um, but you know, I have to. You know, I got to respect it. You know, I, I understand that you're in a compromising position, but that's exactly why I wanted to talk to you because you are in that compromising position. I want to know how you feel about the situation um, in totality. But, you know, look, uh, for the people that were very close with, like, towing the line and not really wanting to call him racist, um, it, it's, it's it's interesting because, you know, what I'd, I'd ask them to describe what a racist does, you know? And then they'd give me the explanation. I'm like, well... Scientists did this. So does this, you know, does it, you know, it, it satisfies this definition, satisfies your definition. I mean, does that change your perspective? And they're like, no. And I'm like, okay, you got to respect that. Personally, like, Wait, I'm not did they, did they change your opinion on that? No, no, wow. no, they did it. They did it. And that's what I was saying earlier. Like when you try to sell me a, a false bill of goods, I'm like, I'm looking at you a little bit crazy. Cause I'm just, I mean, it is what it is. Right. But like, I, I'm not, you know, it's not really my job to say whether or not DeSantis is racist. Like that's not my, that's not why I'm, I'm, I'm in this position. Um, my position is, is to give voice to the people who normally don't have one um, in papers, like the Miami Herald in rooms um, like that I've you know sat in. So it's really just elevating their voices. I, me personally, like, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to take a step back and just say, Hey, well, you know, you might not think you're racist, but there is a gang of people over here. I don't want to use gang because I understand how that is going to be no. taken. But there is a lot of people, black people right here yeah. saying that you are, you know, that you are racist. So, like, I mean, if if anyone if anyone called me a misogynist, right, I would have to be like, oh, OK, and figure out why, why they were calling, keep calling, calling me that. This, yeah. Right. Yeah. And try to do some take some self inventory and try to move differently right but you know you gotta question people who you know at the same time keeps getting thrown out at them and they take no responsibility of it and try to you know uh argue back at you know your assertion of them and we're in reality it's really just an opinion like and if you really want to change you know someone's perception of you you should do the work yeah um versus just being like no that's not true right right take it leave it you know, first of all, I'm going to do a very nuanced statement here. I don't want to say DeSantis is a racist. Mm-hmm. I don't want to say that. I'm not even going to do the whole Andrew Gim line. You know, you may not be a racist, but racist people do like, you know, I'm not going to even do that line. I am going to say he's a bigot. Now, to me, you know, when you're a black person, you kind of know racism, what it is. Racism is just like somebody who has this. You know, you know, like I, I can't stand niggers. You know, like you're from Tupelo, Tupelo, Mississippi. So you know, like you know, you know, like oh man, like that. I can't even be in around in a room with them. I, I hate the smell of it. Like you know, they get into a whole Dave Chappelle sketch. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Right. But a bigot operates with a fundamental ignorance of the world around him and is comfortable mm. within that ignorance and mm. does not want to move from that ignorance. And so, or they may understand that it's ignorant, but they love to project their thoughts onto a subject that, you know, or is, may be deemed improper. 
that to me, and that's a Kamar definition. That's not Webster. I don't even know what Webster says about bigotry. But, you know, it's my podcast, my definitions. So in that sense, I think DeSantis operates in a lens of bigotry towards different demographics, especially to black people. So then the question becomes, how do you think black people in this state respond to DeSantis? Or have you given it much thought? I, you know, it's something that I gave a lot of thought to. Um, obviously, when, when doing this, doing this story, I think you know, there's, I, I want to, you know, and I'm sure you know, you already, you're very well versed in this sort of logic. But I just want to caution listen, listeners from thinking that black people are, are monoliths. You know, they are, we are a very diverse group of people. We don't all hold on to the same beliefs, all that stuff. Right. Now, that being said, it was very hard pressed to find a black person out of everyone that I interviewed um, that said that, you know, DeSantis is bringing us together. You know, at the very least, yeah, that Tallahassee pastor, though, right? That Tallahassee pastor, even the Tallahassee, pa- he switched his party. Oh, he switches. Yeah. He switched his party. This is the same. This is the very pastor who he was also actually a bro. He's actually a bro, too. Mm-hmm. So keep that in mind. But he uh, <laughs> he uh, he switched his party. Um, he was the very pastor who gave the benediction at DeSantis's inauguration. You know, believed um, I'd have to believe uh, or assume that he voted for him. Right. Um, and so when we were just talking about politics and, you know, he's revealed to me that he switched his parties because he said that the the policies of the of the Republican Party aren't commiserate with what they used to be. And, you know, are in direct uh, contrast to what I myself believe. Mm. And so, you know, you have to, I, I mean, I'm not going to comment on whether his politics are right or anything like that. Cause you know, things were said that made me scratch my head a little bit, but I think at the same time, you know, I think that that's worth noting that you even had someone that was your politics purposes that that per that black guy that was willing to say hey like i support him you know the fact that he was willing to switch his parties over policies that you yourself and others have you know pushed i think that that's something that should at the very least caution desantis from or at least give him a pause now out of everything you said and everything you described you know and it it does and from what i've heard it seems like he doesn't really care no um about that and by, by what i've heard you know i'm talking about black people again right the DeSantis does not respond the administration has not responded to one of my emails since december 2021 <laughs> when in fact i actually asked them about harry and harry more and whether or not that falls teaching about them would you know contradict the uh anti-woke bill and you know they said they didn't for xyz reason all et cetera, et cetera. but I mean, look, like if from what I've heard from the black people in the state of Florida, they believe that this is a very divisive governor, you know. And so when you hear all of that, it's it it was up to me to figure out why, you know. And so by laying out the southern strategy and talking with, you know, people who are experts um, in in politics, people who are experts in in African-American history, you know, it to me, it it made, you know, I just try to report what I was told, you know, Um, I don't know if I answered your no, question. No, you answered your question. Sorry. You know, I, I just thought okay. about something. I um, and we'll get back to black. 
I, I didn't ask you. I should have probably done this at the top of the podcast. Mm-hmm. What inspired you to do this story? Honestly, it was something that my editor had handed down to me. Um, okay. She was something that, like, she, she, you know, a couple months back, they said, okay, like, you know, we might have to start shifting our coverage a little bit to, you know, covering DeSantis as a potential presidential candidate. Okay. I said, all right, cool, you know. And then everyone was told to write off a couple pitches. Um, and then one of the things that I always, uh, you know, when it, one of the things that always, I guess, puzzled me about Ronald Reagan was the fact that he was the one who signed MLK, made MLK yeah, his yeah. official holiday. Yeah. You know, and it kind of gets back to your point with trying to do things that, um, you know, kind of shield yourself from being labeled a racist. Right. Because, you know, one of the things I talked about in that in my uh, story was the fact that he, you know, passed, uh, you know, signed, made MLK Day a national holiday and then was able to, excuse me, basically hide behind the logic of, you know, I'm colorblind. I don't see color. We are the inheritors of, of Dr. King's dream. Meanwhile, he's slashing public funding and, right, right. you know, schools are, inner city schools are going down the toilet. Um, crying is rise, all that stuff. So it's it's one of those things that, and so because I was so fascinated with that point of history, and then thinking about DeSantis using terms that like you know he wanted a um, race neutral, um, you know race neutral maps, you know it's it just got me thinking. So I you know typed up a pitch about that, sent it off, and then editor a couple months later is like, okay, I think now now is the time to do that story. I was like, all right, whatever. Um, but now it kind of shifted a little bit to talking about, okay, if, if he actually is a presidential candidate, I think I stumbled upon like a Washington Post op-ed about the Southern strategy and how we got it wrong when it came to Trump. And so when I started thinking about it a little bit, I was like, okay, like this is, this I'm seeing, you know, a comparison there. And obviously, you know, as a, as a reporter, you can't just write what your own opinion is, right, you know. Right. Um, you have to find people that support it. You know, or anybody. And so when I, when I, anytime I ask an African American history professor or, a, you know, a, a political science professor about the Southern strategy, right, right. you know, they're like, oh, yeah, it's definitely, this is definitely it. Right. You know, and it's just, it's just being used as he's campaigning while he still, you know, has the governor's office versus being just solely on the campaign trail. And, you know, right. and it's so, it's just, it was, it was just interesting to me. So I, you know, and I, we talked about this at the top of the podcast that I'm not the biggest, you could describe yourself as what a political a politics nerd. I am not that, right. but however, I am somebody that is, I'm a culture writer. So right. anything that has to do with, with culture and politics, obviously is, is part of culture, you know, it's, it's in the wheelhouse. So I have to be able to kind of explain certain things. I think, you know, I, I think that an okay job of trying to explain. Oh, no, you, you did, I, it was a great article. So, um, I, I appreciate that. One of the things, um, and not because I was in it, but it's also white, also because I was in it. So, <laughs> um, no, I, you just said something interesting, like the object of colorblindness, right? And I remember mm-hmm. my trademark term uh, just came up with Kamara, August 2022. Uh, the great, greatest white skill to white blindness and white rage and white history and white angst, or, you know. And so you have Ron DeSantis and Ronald Reagan who believe in this colorblind ideal of society. But when you're being colorblind, that means you're removing color from the construct of you. And the only thing that's, and then the only thing when you remove color is white. I'm not even talking about it just philosophically. I'm like, literally it's a white view. 
like it's dull and no color. Right. So the idea of removing color from anything, especially in that's American, when race has been embedded in within the very fabric of this country, tells me that you're removing the very fabric of this country. And he, but it's not it's not important because we don't want to as long as that fabric is, you know, um, layered in red, white and blue. That's the only colors you need to be concerned about. Right. And wrap yourself around. Um, so. I do want to ask, though, and, you know, going back to black people and, you know, we'll talk about strategy, the immovable force or the, um, you know, un, no, excuse me, the unstoppable force and the immovable object. Now, is, does he talk about President DeSantis? Is he immovable or is he unstoppable? I have a I have an answer to that. Um, I'm, I'm my opinion, but okay. But I want to hear you. Yeah, I want. I, I was I was gonna say immovable. He thinks it's because immovable. yes, I, because I think unstoppable force. Just thinking about like what that means and like trying to equate it to something that's not necessarily politics. Mm-hmm. For me, when I see an unstoppable force, I see something that's gonna keep going regardless. When I a reason I say immovable is because it's obvious. You know, I think we found that out in 2016 that there is a a sect of this country that agrees with Donald Trump and everything he's saying that feels right. like as a white person that they are being attacked and that they are in danger of losing their position. And so because I, uh, you know, I don't see that changing anytime soon. That's why I think it's a movable object. Cause I think that that's something that is going to stay there. That, right. that part, that belief is going to stay there in the country. But the thing about an immovable object though, is I feel like it, can be even though it won't move they like that that perception won't move anywhere it's not going anywhere i do think that there's a better chance of navigating about a move object navigating you can move around it you can build on top of it right you know you don't have to necessarily just throw your hands up and say like okay like that is what it is um you know and when i think about unstoppable force i think that this is that because if if, if DeSantis is an unstoppable force, if if this this idea of of I don't want to equate DeSantis to this, but I think if, I think that both him, but DeSantis and Trump kind of get they both touch on this notion of white fear replacement theory, right? You know, mm-hmm. and I think there's a lot of that baked into their policies and the way that they they interact with people and all that stuff and all that. So I I that's, that being said. If that is a unstoppable force, I'm scared for my kids, and I can't live that way. I don't have any kids, but my future kids. Right. I and I don't want to to live in fear like that. Um. So that's my that's my I guess my spiel. No, and actually, I'm glad you said that because I don't believe anything's unstoppable. You know. Bingo. I think immovable. I think difficult, but I don't think anything's unstoppable, especially in politics. Um, I believe in strategy. And I believe in expertise and I believe in hard work. And when you combine those things in a campaign, anything can be done. And I loved how you said you can build around it. You can, you can go under it. You can go, you know, on top, fly over it, you know, mm-hmm. um, you can bury it, you know? <laughs> so, but it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. We just know that it's buried, you know, mm-hmm. and we we're, we're moving on. We, you know, we we ball, fuck it, we ball, right? Yes. Yeah, so. 
and one one thing I wanted to say about this, and this is, I think this was Dave Chappelle that that talked about this. Um, like we have, to, and I know Dave Chappelle is a very yeah, controversial yeah, yeah. figure right now. I'm not yeah. trying to get into that, but I I do think that he had a very cogent point when he said that like there's obviously a sect of America that doesn't feel um, that doesn't feel valued by the current political system. You know, that doesn't that feels left out. And I think we have we do have to find a way to welcome them back in. How that how are we going to do that? I have no clue. And obviously, not everybody said right. like I'm not. I don't want to. Right. That's not what I'm saying. Not everybody said there are some people who are too far off the you know being path who are in the chat rooms and you know all. It, some people can't be saved. However, there is. I feel like there's more people who are just need maybe more black friends. I don't. I don't have the answer, but right. I just I feel like there's some level that there is an obvious sect of this country that needs to be welcomed back in. Right. How do we do that? That's not my, that's not my job, but it's, it's, it's at this point, we can't just ignore that this, you know, that the white replacement theory, uh, you know, you can't just say it doesn't exist right now because there's too many policies and being crafted around that, that very, that are undergoated by that very, right. That very Critical much. race theory being the CRT, debate um being the main um object you know or main uh vehicle in um delivering the white uh, white replacement theory um all right so here's what i'm you know we're gonna go ahead and in this podcast because again it is election day i know you're probably people listening by the time you listen to hear this podcast you're like oh man i'm, I'm in, sitting in line voting you shouldn't be sitting in line actually because the lines should be pretty quick but anyway um talking about black voters and, you know, I just wanted you to give me your final thoughts on how does the party actually engage with black voters? Because they're going to need them in order to beat this immovable object. Like, what have you, what are your thoughts on that in general? Not like mid state party or, you know, natural, but what are your mm-hmm. thoughts on this? Because let's say twofold to beat DeSantis in um, for reelection, stop him from getting reelection. Or let's say he gets reelected. To stop him from the 2024, what does the Democratic Party have to do in order to engage black folks? It can't, they have to create policies that aren't just like, a lot, a lot of times I feel like the Democratic Party is more like anti-Republican versus coming across your own, coming, having your own agenda and trying to right. educate that and get that across. And I think a lot of times it's just like, okay, they're the bad guys. Right. So you don't want to, you know, associate with them. And like, that just doesn't, work anymore i agree and i don't think it ever really worked no but it definitely doesn't work now. right um so i think it's it's about trying to i mean look every i feel like every single year we we do souls to the polls we do all these things but i i mean i i think it's out to we can't only focus on elections when it comes to when it's like august when it's november you know right. i think it's up to the dominican Democratic Party to really just raise the entire political conscience of their, of their, of the, of this black people. Really, it's up to us to be talking about politics and elections and all that stuff twenty four seven because it has a greater effect on on you than you realize. Right. You know, and then also I think we can't have this short term memory. You know, um, it was I forget who said this. I was at this um, I was at this forum uh, last week and it was a bunch of black women talking about the end of Roe v Wade and their thoughts on it and one of the uh, 
this this woman brought up a great point. She's a lawyer down here. If I remember her name, I'd, I'll definitely have to shout her out. But basically, she said that like we can't forget the fact that like the end of Roe v. Wade is was brought about by white women. So now you have all these white women, you know, on the front line yelling out. But it's like, okay, you know, a good percentage of y'all voted for Trump. Right. And y'all knew that we had these Supreme appointment, these Supreme Court appointments coming up, and y'all still voted for him. Right. You know, and so they chose their race over their gender. Right. They chose and, patriarchy but, but, or patriarchy over their own rights. Exactly. And so we have to keep that in mind when you know there's when there's all these white women on the front lines and like you know protest if you want to, but also you can't talk out both sides of your neck. So I say all that to say, like we we one can't have that short term memory. We have to realize that everything is connected. You know, but then also I think it's up to us just as as people just to raise the entire political consciousness because we can't only be worried about elections when it comes November, when it comes August. You know, it has to be something that's twenty four seven conversation. Maybe not twenty four seven, but like you know, we gotta at least for for me when when I have kids, like we're gonna be talking about politics as soon as they're you know of a of a of a good age because I can't I. I you can't just leave it to chance, right. you know. And obviously, like I'm speaking from a place of privilege, that like you know, I'm I'm I my kids are going to have, uh, you know, a library full of um, Black Panther books. Like they're going to have that thing. I I know that. And so, um, it, it's up to I guess people just to really just get into their get into their communities, talk to that aunt, talk to that cousin that's thinking of not voting, um, and really just try to raise the political conscience mm-hmm. consciousness yeah. you know so, that's my my that's my two cents no I, I i appreciate that and actually that rolled into um i always in my podcast i always have a section called dear black people right and so mm-hmm. to me i think to your point uh bruh, is that in order for dear black people in order for the democratic party to actually engage with us um they're gonna have to start way before election season. You know, right now we have a Democratic primary that is really, really, you know, combative, right? And it's going to, first of all, the fissures of that particular campaign um, are going to have to be healed. But one thing I think has been evident while watching this entire primary is how much black voters are not so much excited about this particular primary. When you talk to them, and just around the street, it's just kind of the, you know, residual, I don't, you know, I'm not really excited. I don't really care. Whether it's because they don't really see the candidates in them, they don't see themselves in those candidates, or they don't see the policies. And, you know, you've seen these candidates now crisscross the state in order to try to bring about an interest in their campaign, pr- primarily saying, oh, you know, we're going to talk about licensing black farmers and all this you know, and um, like marijuana licensing and black farmers getting their proper loans and things like that and, and encouragement, entrepreneurship and all that. I think those are great conversations. But those are conversations that really should be had, not just in the three-month span. These are long-range policy statements, and it takes a nuance to really not only describe it, but to also make it an effective plan. And then if you're going to create a plan for black people, then you got to include black people. And if for my thing, for dear black people, I'd want us to not wait on those candidates to come, that, come back and redeem themselves. I want us to create the policies and present that to them. I want us to 
have get in touch with our own black lobbyists and our own black policymakers and create the plan. And then whomever gets in the office, we say, this is what we have. And this is the research behind it. And this is why it's important. And I don't want you to come to me every two years about my vote. I want you to come to me because this is a real plan for engagement. So yes, these candidates are going to have to redeem themselves to each other's voting base. But more importantly, Black people, we're going to have to redeem our interest within this particular po- political process. And I think that's most, most important. And I don't care who gets on the Iron Throne. I don't care who's, you know, going to win the game. I just, can, I just care if they're going to use our playbook. So with that being said, yeah. I couldn't think of a better song to write out to than this one. Now, check this out. I'm voting for Nikki Freed, but if she should not win, I'm still going to rock out. I'm still going to push on. And hopefully I would have redeemed myself enough to the um, other candidate who shall remain nameless until, you know, after Election Day. With that being said, thank you all for listening to this podcast. And we are out. All pirates, yes, they rob Sold light to the merchant ships Minutes after they took I From the bottomless pit But my hand was made strong By the end of the Almighty We forward in this generation Triumphantly won't you help to sing these songs of freedom cause all I ever have redemption songs redemption